So after this evening's meeting, the monks, we all have to return to Ratanawan Monastery for the night. This is still the Pansa or the Vasa, the three months determined to stay, not to not leave the monastery more than seven nights. So we'll go to Watpa Ratanawan after this meeting and come back early in the morning tomorrow. So if you notice that we aren't here, don't feel deserted. It's just part of monastic discipline. Don't take it personally. <laughs> so we'll continue our questions and answers. Ajahn Soko, we can read the questions. So the first question isn't a written question, actually. It came in otherwise. Someone, it's a question from the group in India, Indian background. They're asking if they now practice mindfulness and meditation regularly. What about the gods and deities that they used to worship? Are they going to get upset, angry? So the mindfulness is the highest form of meditation. You can't get higher than that. Like devotion, devotional practices, bhakti practices, the various deities like Shiva or Vishnu, to God in Christianity, Jesus, Allah. These are names, various names for ultimate reality. Now they're given anthropomorphic forms. But what they really mean, because this is the best language can do, is to make them more available, more personal, to give them a, a, some kind of human quality, like uh, even though they're deities, they're gods, they have the features of male or female human beings. And these, this is the, what religion does, but they're aiming at the same thing, at ultimate reality. Because ultimate reality is, is, you know, in this term, it's not anthropomorphic, is it? It's more kind of philosophical or lacking in, uh, you know, our human qualities that we might, uh, feel we need to be connected to a higher force that's loving or compassionate, uh, wise and good is, it's, you know, it's all our intentions to seek ultimate reality or happiness. You know, this is what we all want, every human being on the planet that's ever lived and the present population included. And then uh, different religions have different names, different ways of, like monotheistic religion, like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, tend to, you know, create this sense of 
there's only one God and all the rest are heathen, uh, they're not gods, they're demons and so forth. This is the, the view of holding to a monotheistic view. It's a viewpoint. It's not ultimate reality. Or polytheism or where you, know, you believe in many gods, like in Hinduism, there are many deities. The, 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 these deities aren't, you know, they're, they're forms to be devoted to, but the highest form of meditation is mindfulness, really. Because from that, from mindfulness, you're actually realizing God, Shiva, the reality of that, rather than worshipping some imagined form or, or a, devoting yourself to an imagined deity. So this kind of practice is not kind of a, it's not like denial of, of God or it's not atheistic. It's not a rejection of other gods. It's not about rejecting or uh, taking a viewpoint, uh, an absolute viewpoint that we're right and and if you don't agree with us, you're, you're wrong. But you notice it's open attentiveness, investigation, so that you're, you're being empowered through this kind of practice to investigate consciousness, which you, you, you know, this is the experience that we're all having all the time is consciousness. And we live in, a, you know, we we identify with the conditioned realm, with the body, with the emotions, with the memories. Can you know we're conditioned to culturally conditioned, socially conditioned. So we tend to bind ourselves to the conditioning process and to the assumptions <clears throat> that we make about ourselves being a limited mortal form. So in this Buddhist context, the Buddha was not denying anything. It's not atheistic. Because atheism saying there aren't any gods, there isn't any god, is a belief too. You know, you believe there there is God, only one God, or there are many gods, or there aren't any gods. It's about believing some kind of information or some assumption that you, you've acquired. It's not through investigation that you can make such a statement. So in um, Theravada Buddhism, you've got this Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma Sangha triangle, triad, which is, which are more pointers than beliefs. It's not in, that there's some kind of Buddha, uh, like a deity called Buddha in, in the universe, you know, that we worship. It's awareness. So we use the mantra puto, not as devotion to some kind of imagined Buddha force in, in, in the universe, but, Reminder to trust awareness. 
this knowing in the present. And then the Dhamma teachings that we have in Vipassana are, are all kind of pointers, directional signs, such as like the Satipatthana, the Gayanupasana, the body, Vedananupasana, the, the feeling, the sensitivities, Jitanupasana, the mental states, and Tamanupasana, the Dhamma. Investigating, looking into, and realizing God, Shiva, Dhamma, whatever name you want to call it, as a reality of here and now. It's not something, some remote figure on Mount Kailash or some mystical force in the universe. It's consciousness. Is mindfulness the same as emptiness? Well, my mindfulness is, it's aware of emptiness, aware of conditions. In itself, it is, it's knowing. If you want to, define mindfulness in its ultimate state. Like consciousness is is the its quality is knowing the present is like this. And that's why when when I ask you if you're conscious you say yes. You know that's a knowing, direct knowing consciousness. Sometimes, you know, the consciousness is, has all kinds of mental conditions because things come and go, arise and cease, uh, <clears throat> moods change, emotions, thoughts, memories, uh, you know, according to other conditions. So just the change in the weather will bring a mood in, you know, whether it, it starts, it's wet and cold and gloomy. And that's in consciousness. And, and as we're aware of the conditions that we're conscious of, that we're aware of, it's not only awareness of the external, but awareness of the, the mood. The feeling of gloom and doom and when things are cold and dark and dreary. But awareness itself, not just never is dark and gloomy. It's, it's like luminosity and it doesn't, doesn't change according to the mood or the state of your health or the, whether you are being successful or failure or you're being admired and recognized and praised or blamed and rejected and despised. Consciousness never gets depressed or elated about praise but knows elation 
is like this, knowing that feeling rejected and despised is like this. So that's why it is the refuge, because it's what you can trust. It isn't influenced by changes of the weather or the social system or what's happening in the family or the economy or the political problems of the present time. Like when we talk about emptiness, is the, the recognize because we, you know, the average un awakened, unenlightened human being is caught up in the condition realm, just fumbling from one condition to the next. The silence and peace of consciousness, even though it exists in everyone, can be completely overlooked for the next, you know, interesting or condition to grasp hold of. So like conditioning, the process of conditioning is continuously kind of feeding into uh, our minds, consciousness, you know, the, you know, things to, duties to perform, views to hold, positions to take, things to fear and dread, conspiracy theories that people can imagine, all kinds of evil forces and plots, you know, whatever, the future is, is about imagination. We can imagine all kinds of evil forces in the universe. Is, is the devil a kind, is there a permanent force of evil, like a satanic force that is latent or underlying things, you know, ready to grab us in a weak moment. You know, we can believe that. Sometimes life does seem like that. But evil is a condition, you know, it, it is a sankhara. And awareness is aware of, you know, a sankhara that you might define as evil, but we're not making it into a problem, we're recognizing all sankharas are impermanent, not self. So, you know, this is where Mara, this Pali word Mara or Maya, delusion, temptation, these kind of words, when we, we're mindful, we're aware of these these delusions, these mirages, these maras, because they're sankharas, they rise and cease. But what isn't a sankhara is your mindfulness, awareness, consciousness. The next question is regarding when one has realized the Dhamma, does that afford us some sort of protection from dukkha? Or does one still have to deal with life on a personal level? Yeah, well, as long as the, you know, the body's 
breathing, I have to deal with old age and uh, the worldly dhammas, you know, praise and blame, success and failure, good fortune, misfortune. But enlightenment means that, uh, you know, we're, we're taking our refuges in awareness. So it doesn't mean that an enlightened person that lives in a state of kind of, uh, kind of heavenly bliss as a, you know, and they don't experience anything but, but peace and bliss and happiness as, as the, on the conditioned realm because we still have to deal with the aging, aging of the body and the family problems, social problems. But our relationship to them is free from delusion. So, you know, when Lung Pa Cha became ill, last ten years of his life, he was an invalid. But he wasn't deluded by it. It just... What happens to a physical body when they, you know, strokes or heart attacks? So that is part of the physical realm, the karma of of these physical forms: old age, sickness, death. But the awareness is deathless, the amata dhamma. So when you really uh, you begin to really appreciate this kind of teaching because you realize there's nothing to fear. It doesn't mean like enlightened human beings, you know, you know, you read about saints and, and enlightened masters who die from cancer or heart attacks or things. They aren't, they don't always just die in full lotus posture, smiling. You know, that's the, that's the image that we have. But we have to deal with it, live with the vipaka kama of having been born on, on planet Earth and the conditions that change, the, the planetary conditions, the uh, climatic conditions, social conditions. But awareness then is our refuge rather than, you know, hoping for the best and then fearing the dreading maybe the aging process or fearing death. Things like this are done from the conditions of the mind. You know, ultimate reality is nothing to fear, deathlessness. But in terms of sankharas, they're all, they're all about beginning and ending, rising and ceasing, birth and death. So that's where this reflection and seeing the, just observing the ending of a thought or the cessation of a emotion is a kind of death. An emotion of anger arises. 
And then it ceases that it died. That's what death is, the end of something, of a condition. And when something ends, it's, you know, if you're patient and let anger cease, you, you recognize, you you, you realize peacefulness. That's the nature. That's emptiness. Peace is empty. It's not, it's not a condition that has a quality other than peacefulness. And the next question is regarding the Four Noble Truths that they were uh, described the other day by Lumbodun. The mind knowing the mind. What do you mean by the word mind? Uh, to, me, to, to clarify how I use these words, when I talk about the mind, M-I-N-D, because that's a generic word in common English parlance, you know, so we use it for anything mental. It can mean consciousness or any emotion, mental states. So, in trying to define, you know, make clear how I'm using these words, I use the word mind for mental states, like emotions, thoughts, feelings, And and consciousness I use for the awareness, mindfulness. So mental states, mind states arise in consciousness. They they you know they appear and disappear in consciousness. So consciousness and mind can't in this use of the word mind, the mind can't know the mind. Like condition, one condition can't know itself. You know, the, your personality, your created sense of yourself as a physical body can't know that, what it's doing. Mental states, emotions, love and hate, like and dislike, you know, they, they don't know themselves. That's why when we grasp love or hate, we, we become like that. We become someone who's in love or obsessed with somebody else or angry and, and revengeful because we're grasping these mind states, conditions that arise and cease. But when we're aware, mindful or conscious of these mental states, then we're looking at them from the puto tamo position of they you know they are sankaras all sankaras are impermanent this kind of refrain the way of of recognizing discerning uh you know mental states that are come and go and the supreme consciousness universal consciousness that we actually are rather than this mortal body, mortal form, these these kind of emotions and habits and personalities that we think we are. 
These are what we believe we are and what we think we are. But these are mental states. They're all sankharas. So when I use the word mind, it, it's talking about mental conditioning, emotions, feelings, memories, imagination, creativity, you know, imagining all kinds of things or wanting, not wanting, loving, hating, and so forth. These are mental, these are mind states. Awareness, consciousness, mindfulness is the deathless refuge, puto tamo sanko. You use the words, uh, the Pali words, niroda and vinyan. Could you explain them, please? Like the, the word, Pali word means cessation, niroda. And it, it, it's generally, you know, the third noble truth is is uh, this word is used for the insight into the cessation of suffering. So the first noble truth, there is suffering, is a, is a bariati statement. It's what you read in the scriptures. You know, so when you read the, about the Buddha's first sermon, he said there is suffering. And then, uh, you know, to understand suffering and have the insight, you know, so you, you know suffering not from just intellectual rationalizing it, but by understanding it, you, know, you you observe, you're the observer of suffering, you're the knower of the first noble truth. It's like this. So that's the statement of using something so common, so ordinary as suffering. Dukkha is, is the most ordinary human experience. You know, from time past, from Adam and Eve, up to the present moment, you know, whatever culture, civilization you you identify with, whatever age, you know, dukkha is the common bond of all creative beings. So in this way, you know, we say brothers and sisters in suffering. This kind of gives you this sense of of a compassion for all sentient beings. When you know that the dukkha is, is a common to all of us, it's not just my suffering that matters and, and all the rest don't count. You know, that's very, that's self-centered, that's very selfish, narcissistic ego trip. My suffering's important, but the rest you know, you can, you know, you read the news. Uh, 
hear the news about, you know, bombing people, you know, collateral damage, you know, where innocent people are just wiped out because they happen to be in the wrong place. And it doesn't matter, they're not important. You know, but I'm important. I'm the the fighter, the the one that's bombing people, but my life is important, but theirs isn't. This is because we see things from a very, you know, my life is important, but nobody else's life is is so important. And on the when we talk about selfishness or egotism, that's how we tend to feel, you know. Me and my family, but the rest don't matter. And if they're different race, different culture, this collateral damage is a kind of disgusting, cold-hearted way of defining what happens. It's, you know, it's so inhuman. You wipe out somebody's family and say, oh, it's collateral damage, it's war. But if you reflect in terms of Dhamma that we all have this dukkha, this suffering. It's the same for all of us. It's not more or less for Thais or for Indians or Europeans or Africans. It's the same for all of us. So it's a noble truth to be understood, not a nasty fact of life that we blame on other things, other conditions. And we're looking here, you know, so you point to to our mind, to our heart area, where the feeling area. Because the rational thought, we, you know, as I've said before, we can create perfect images, symbols of perfection with thinking, but our life is about feeling, emotions. This is a feeling realm, this is a sense realm. And, you know, so we're caught in this sensitive form. Human body is totally sensitive form in a vast universe. You know, so from the day you're born, you're, you're subject to, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensitivity, heat and cold, hunger, fatigue, physical pain, pleasure, and so forth, from birth until death of the body. That's the way it is. So Dukkha is the first noble truth to be understood. And then the insight, this is on the heart level, not on the intellectual one. We understand it. We can define Dukkha or suffering, just read the definition in the Pali dictionary that, but that's not understanding suffering. Understanding suffering is observing. Puto knowing it's like this to feel angry or to feel lonely, to feel worried, to feel fear. Then the second noble truth, the causes of suffering, has an origin. Third noble truth is cessation of suffering. 
So the first two noble truths is this investigation of dukkha, which is sankaras, you know, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. And the objects that we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. And thought itself, emotions, So by grasping out of ignorance of Dhamma, we identify, you can say, identify or grasping sankharas. We identify with the human body or we grasp the human body out of ignorance. And that's what we limit ourselves to. So we're bound to suffer if this is this is what we are, you know, our world is is limited to the physical structure, conditions and problems of a human body. Growing up, getting old, getting sick and dying, you know, that's, is that what we identify with? Is that what we really are? But if you notice, we're aware of growing old, Awareness doesn't grow old. You're aware of when you have a cold, when you have the flu, when you're hungry, when you're sleepy. You're aware when, when you feel lonely and upset or depressed or when you, when you're happy, when you're ecstatic, when you're Whatever you're feeling, if you're drunk or inebriated or under, is consciousness never gets inebriated. Never gets drunk, never gets lost in drug addiction, but condition, mental states, physical states change according to what we consume or take into our bodies. So, the cause of suffering is this ignorance of icha and the grasping of desires. We identify with our desires. Kamadana, pavadana, vipodana. So, by investigating, by looking into these, is to let go of them. So the insight in the second noble truth is letting go. But to have that insight, you have to really grasp things to see the suffering of grasping. So it's not just about trying to get rid of everything. It's an idea of you've got to let go of everything. That can be an ideal. You should, you should let go of everything. And then try and do that, you can't really do it. But by investigating, clinging, grasping, identity with sankhara, this is like intuitive awareness. Just like, I am this physical body. This is, this is me, you know, and I, you know, I'm in my practice over the years, you know, this identity with the body, with the, feelings, the mental states. 
but the awareness of them, this sense of me and mine, I see as a creation. It's not, mindfulness doesn't have any possessive conditions in it. Consciousness is pure, complete and whole. Where mental states can be, you know, you really get possessive, jealous, grasping, obsessed with fears, with desires, with conditions. And by observing that, that obsession, that concern, endless grasping, identity with sankharas, you, you have the inside in it. That rather than getting rid of them, you know, it's not about annihilation, just let go. This, you know, in Thai, ploy, ploy one. Letting go is more like relaxing. Don't, don't just spend your life holding, grasping. It's the life of tension and, and dukkha if we, if we don't understand this. You know, we live in this state of tension and stress where letting go is relaxing, not annihilating or or destructive or in any way. And that leads to third noble truth, the cessation, the realization of niroda, the absence of grasping. So, Niroda is desirelessness, non-grasping. It's freedom. It's joyful happiness. So, you know, in the Buddhist sense, suffering by emphasizing suffering as a noble truth and by understanding suffering you realize your true nature is happiness. So instead of seeing that, you know, as a gloom-doom scenario and, and Buddhism is some kind of, you know, you just, when you're dead, you know, you go to Nibbana, which is nothing, or, you know, the happiness, or is it a state of eternal bliss, or, you know, you can imagine Nibbana, the word Nibbana as, you know, usually call it the highest happiness. Niroda, Nibbana, these are, you can't define them. But you can realize them because they're re- they're reality, ultimate reality. So then, the insight into Niroda to make that then that's path knowledge. You have an insight into the path of non-suffering, the fourth noble truth. So that samaditi, right understanding, perfect understanding. It's beyond doubt. It's not just an intellectual understanding of Buddhism or Buddha Dhamma. It's not theoretical or philosophical 
or something, you know, that you imagine or believe in. It's, it's through direct insight, through knowing. Like tasting honey, you know, if, so if you've never tasted honey, somebody comes up to you and says, would you, have you ever had honey? And they say, no, no, no. What is it? And you explain, it's sweet, it's delicious. And so, and then they give you the chemical formula for honey, tell you how it's made by bees, and tell you all the different brands of honey, and the best quality of honey, and the history of honey. <laughs> but you still don't know what it tastes like. <laughs> oh, you know, it's sweet and delicious. But you don't know really, you know, until you actually taste it, what honey is. So Dhamma is like that, you know, it's the taste of Dhamma. Is, you know, you can talk about Dhamma and describe it and what the Buddha said about it, what Buddha Gosa said about it, what the Arahants have said, what the great sages in China have said about the Dhamma, and on what Lung Po Man said about the Dhamma, Lung Po Cha. It's like, you know, knowing all about honey without ever tasting it. So, like meditation, mindfulness meditation is tasting the honey, tasting the Dhamma. In fact, I think one of Lampochard's books translated into English is called The Taste of the Dhamma. Another question is about uh, effort in practice. Effort? Effort in practice. How does one avoid falling into bhavatanha, vipavatanha in terms of desire to attain something in practice? Well, like in samatha meditation, you use, you, you have, use effort and concentration and mindfulness. You have these five factors, sata, viri, sati, samadhi, panya. And mindfulness is the center point. Sati, you know, so sata is faith, virya is effort, sati is mindfulness, samadhi is concentration, panya is wisdom. And so like sata and panya, you know, with mindfulness, we balance effort with mindful, with wisdom, sata and panya, and virya and samadhi. So there's a, in these five factors, you know, this, the, uh, sati is a, is a kind of central point. Virya and Samadhi balance each other and 
faith and wisdom balance each other. So it's about balance. And like, you know, when you see a, a baby learning to walk, you know, it's the effort it takes to find the balance when the infant is learning to, to, to learn to walk. First they have to crawl, you know, first they can't even crawl. And they start crawling, then they start pulling themselves up on the furniture, standing on two legs and then falling over. And then they learn to stand up, holding on to things, and then they take a couple of steps independently and fall down. They get up again. So eventually, the balance is realized. You know, so that the walking is becomes easy and natural, effortless. They don't have, they don't fall down anymore. They they know how to. It's intuitive, isn't it? If you know, if you say to a child, you know, you've got two legs, walk. It's kind of logical. You know, you've got two legs, just walk, do it. And they can't do that at first. So like being mindful and say, just be mindful, that's enough. Is true, that is enough. But also, in the beginning stages, you know, just concentrating on the breath. You know, there's six kind of efforts. But the, you know, how you kind of learn how to use effort, too much effort, or not enough effort. If you use too much effort, you know, then you, you're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to feel, you're going to get a headache. You're going to feel stressed and rigid. You know, so you see people concentrating, you know, with their brows furrowed and, their teeth grinding each other and, and holding themselves. You know, it's like using so much effort to concentrate, then, then you get a headache. And then you think you can't meditate. Because, you know, what are you trying to get? What are you, you know, what is the aim? Is, 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 is effort is, is too much for, to concentrate. Effort and concentration balance each other. So it's intuitive, you know, like knowing when you're balanced and when you're not. <clears throat> so like too much effort is, you know, when you're lifting a heavy log onto a lorry, you have to use an enormous amount of effort to lift something heavy and put it into the back of a lorry. You can't sustain that effort. You can't concentrate that effort for very long. But it's the kind of effort you need for situations such as that. If you think effortless, that samadhi is effortless, then you, you, th you think you, not to put any effort into anything, and then you just fall asleep. 
So this is where you have to trust yourself in learning, you know, this sense of relaxed attention. Mindfulness is effortlessness. Concentration takes effort. And in the long run, effort is is just relaxed attention. Just this sense of awareness in the sense of open, relaxed state is samasamadhi of the Eightfold Path. But this is where, you know, encouraging you to experiment, see what, you know, when you're getting headaches or getting stresses, you too much effort. If you're just, you remember in what uh, poem and one prior night on the moon, lunar, lunar nights, they had, we had to sit up all night. And, uh, they call it one of the Tudanga, one of the ascetic practices that's allowed to Buddhist monks is Nesatik Vata's not lying down. So then, you know, that's a real exercise in effort, you know, to try to keep awake. When all, you know, when you're, we're very habituated to, you know, feel sleepy at certain times, you know, we're creatures of habit. So it gets around 10 o'clock at night and you're sitting there and, and you just feel so sleepy and then you're straining to get rid of sleepiness. Tina Mita, one of the Kilesas. I mean, you, you've read the scriptures about you've got to get rid of tinamita, sleepiness. So you're fighting it and forcing yourself. Then you sneak behind your kuti and drink strong cups of coffee and then come back. <laughs> one monk used to tie himself to one of the posts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can do all kinds of things just to to stay awake and not and think you've been keeping this this tudanga practice of not lying down. And, but it's you know it's the idea that you shouldn't sleep, that you've got to stay awake, you can't lie down, is how we interpret that particular uh, ascetic practice. But in tinamita, or sleepiness, drowsiness, is a condition. It's a sankara. So I found using awareness of sleepiness, you know, I'd be aware of, you know, the around the eyes, or I'd try to observe the in the physical body where I felt this, this sense of tinamito or sleepiness or dullness. Kind of keep my investigating abilities towards something that's actually happening, you know, physically to me. Where before I did this, I tended to resist and fight it. 
another monk in, in Amravati used to put a book on his head, you know, like balance a book on his head and sit there. And then, and then in the middle of the night, you hear the book crash on the floor. <laughs> And go to the most extreme kind of try, efforts to try to to uh, stay awake and keep to this rule. So right effort is intuitive. It's a balanced with concentration, and it's mindfulness that that is that it's intuitive awareness that knows balance. When a child is learning to walk, you can, you know, tell them how to walk. You've got two legs, you can walk, put put your right foot forward, then your left, and tell them about how everybody you know can walk. And describe even maybe physiologically what's happening when your body is walking and how, what good walking is, what good posture is. You know, this is all, you know, descriptions of, of, of walking. But you can't really walk un, until you learn, you know, intuitively learn to balance. Balance isn't something rational that you, you can just read in a book and do it. It's learning to, get the feeling for for imbalance. At first you have to be imbalanced, fall over. You notice how babies, you know, they they fall over and they pick themselves up right away. They don't think, oh, I can't walk, I'm hopeless. You know, they don't think, that's one of their good fortunes. <laughs> And so, you know, they, they, they fall over and they get up right away. And so that's, you know, the, the mind of an infant. You know, it's not a, it's not a critical, it's not reached the critical stage yet or thinking, you know, because they can't walk that there's something wrong with them. They just keep at it till they learn. Same with meditation. You know, even though you make mistakes, you use too much effort or not enough effort, you learn from that. You know, this is awareness. You, if you're too stressed and tense and getting headaches, then you're, you're trying too hard. If you're too relaxed and too kind of lethargic, you know, then you just feel sleeping, fall asleep. So then finding the balance between effort and concentration is through, through uh, awareness, sati. And then sata and panya, faith and wisdom. Faith in this, you know, is in this sense, the English word faith for sada isn't just blind belief, but a confidence, a trust in what you're doing. So it's not like, oftentimes 
in English the word faith means you're believing in something. Uh, you know that in a religion you have faith in God or Jesus and faith in that is kind of a kind of accepting, uh, you know, something you've been told. But in, in the virtue of sada is it, learning to trust Trusting your awareness, learning to trust awareness. Those who hear, who hear what I'm saying, trust this, trust this awareness. Because you know, if you're out of balance, if you're, if you're stressed out, you know, if you're, too relaxed and falling asleep. I mean, there's this knowing. And then we tend to, you know, see it in terms of personal. You know, I'm, I can't meditate. I, I get a headache every time I try or I just fall asleep. I have just dull states. And you interpret the experiences you're having in personal terms. You know, so it, it then it creates this sense of lack of trust. You know, I can't do it. I don't have the bar in me. I'm not good enough. Or if you tend to overestimate yourself, you think I can, you know, I'm, you want to, you take pride in your concentration. I've got the jhanas. I've got psychic powers. I've got, you know, I'm really good. That's the other extreme. That's created sense of self with identity with success or identity with failure. So identity is a form of clinging, upadana. That in the second noble truth we see is the cause of suffering. So we get back to that, and, you know, be willing to suffer and, and welcome suffering. It's like this, and see it as a noble truth rather than something you just want to get rid of and, and blame others for or blame yourself. <laughs> 